If you've got a Bible with you, please open to Romans chapter 9. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles available downstairs on the sides, by the sound booth upstairs in the middle. If you're here for the first time, if you're here for the baptism, or if, uh, for whatever reason you're here for the first time, welcome. My name's Mark. I serve as the teaching pastor here, and we are uh, restarting a series in Romans. We're in Romans chapter 9 this morning. I wanted to let you know the next two Sundays, we're going to be in Romans 10. We're going to do it a little bit out of order. Um, so next Sunday will be Romans 10, 5 through 21. And then the Sunday after that will be Romans 10, 1 through 4. The reason is we wanted Randy Newman, who uh, many of you may know, he's a, 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 a brother, uh, lives locally, um, Christian from Jewish background, and he just has a great heart for uh, Jewish people. And we wanted him to, to preach from Romans 10, 1 through 4 and just share with us his heart for reaching uh, Jewish people with the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. And he uh, wasn't available next week, but he is on the 17th. So that's why we're going out of order. So um, if you are uh, just in relationship with uh, Jewish people who want to know more about the Messiah, that would be a great opportunity uh, to, uh, to invite them to, to come to a service if they're in a place of doing that. So as, uh, as, as we get started here, let's pray. God, as we quiet our hearts right now, we remember that you are very great. You are the maker of heaven and earth. As we heard in Ellen's story, you are the redeemer of lost people. And you are the living God the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And as we listen to Romans chapter 9, God, let us hear your voice. May we encounter you the living God, in a saving way that leads to worship. That's my prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The most important question for you this morning, the most important question for each and every human being on planet earth this morning is simply this, how can I come into right standing with God? The gospel of Jesus Christ is news. It's good news that the unrighteous, that wayward sinners like us can be reconciled, can be brought into right standing with God by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We can be transformed, not by something we've earned or deserved, but by 
grace. The letter that we have in front of us here, this letter to the Romans written by the Apostle Paul, it was written in about A.D. 57, and it unpacks this theme of transforming grace. Now, we began this series in Romans last March. We made it halfway through the book. We got through chapter 8, and then we took a break for the holidays. Now, today we pick it up again. So, as we have gone through the, 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 the letter, we've talked about this as, as maybe thinking about it as a, as a train with stops, the transforming grace train. So, stop number one is called guilty, where uh, the Holy Spirit reveals to all human beings that we are guilty before a holy God. Stop two is justified, the good news that we can be brought into right standing with a righteous God through the righteous finished work of Jesus Christ and faith in him. Sanctified is stop three, how God begins to to work in the lives of his people to conform them to the image of Jesus Christ. Now we come to stop four, uh, chapters 9 through 11, which I've labeled mission, which could just as easily be labeled Israel. I'll explain more about that in a moment. And then the last stop is community. How does this gospel, this good news, work out, not just in one person's life, but also in the life of a community? This was a letter that was written to a church. It was written to a group of Christians. And it, it's intended to work out in those one another's that Kenneth was talking about a moment ago. It's intended to work out in community. As we live in a society and as we live together together, uh, uh, as, as brothers and sisters in the Lord. So that's, that's where we sort of are on this train. So today we begin this section in chapters 9 through 11. Israel is the, is the focus of these chapters. There's really a, a key question here for us, and that is this. Listen, if the gospel is such good news, why do the people who are closest to it remain so unmoved by it? It's a good question. It's a fair question, a reasonable question. Why have so few Jewish people come to faith and what will happen to Israel as a result? So we're going to talk about Israel's past, Israel's present, and Israel's future. And as we do that, we're going to find that there's great connectivity for us here today. I want you just to listen to the first five verses of chapter 9 as Paul the Apostle just reveals his heart for his people. Listen to the compassion the urgency of these words. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. We need to hear Romans chapter 9 this morning, and we can benefit in at least three ways that I want to just point to as we get started. First, we, we need to hear this so that we might grasp God's heart and plan to reach Jewish people today. Again, Randy Newman will work more with this in two weeks. Second, do you know what can happen here this morning? Every single person here 
can be dazzled by the sovereignty and glory of the living God. Third, we can be warned about the possibility of being religious unbelievers, of being oh so close, but still being outside the kingdom of God. Israel has these incredible gifts from Israel, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, and the Christ. And in Paul's day and in ours as well, there are relatively few Jewish believers. Why is this? We need to think about this. Isn't this sort of bad advertising for the kingdom of God, for the gospel? You could ask the same question. Why is it that so many kids who grow up in church aren't Christians, don't follow the Lord? Isn't that sort of bad advertising? Doesn't that reveal it's kind of a, 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 a faulty message? It'd be like, I don't know, people who work at a Ford factory, so they spend all day putting together Ford vehicles, and then when they leave, they go out to the parking lot and get in their cars that are all Toyotas and drive home. Like, it's not good advertising, is it? So why does this happen? What's happening here? Why doesn't Israel believe is the question that Paul puts in front of us here. Now, there are obviously some Jewish people who believe. There's some here this morning who are from Jewish backgrounds who believe the writer of this letter is a Jewish person who's come to faith in Christ. Jesus was a Jewish person, and his apostles and the first people in the church were Jewish people. But why doesn't all Israel believe? By and large, why doesn't Israel believe? And so we're going to get three answers that we're going to look at here this morning. Answer number one. Why doesn't all Israel believe? Answer one. It's not because God word has, God's word failed. It's not because God's word failed. Listen to the word of God. Verse six. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they're offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what is promised, what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they, had not, they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, But because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, I want you to notice what's happening here. Got a spiritual question. What about these people that are so close to the gospel? How come they're not all flocking to faith? How's the question answered? You see what's happening here? Open your Bible. That's... That's what Paul does. That's what Paul is modeling for us. He's got, there are these questions, so he's going to go back to the Bible. So we go back to the beginning of the story and say, what happened back there in Genesis? What happens in Genesis has direct relevance for your life here today. That's what we're being taught here. So back in Genesis 12, God gives this promise to Abraham and that he's going to have this massive family. Now at the time, he has no children. But he's promised that he's going to have a huge family and through that family, blessing is going to come to the whole world. Now that's the promise. The question is, how does it work out? And the answer is absolutely brilliant. I want you to follow what is said here. Paul's answer is, God keeps this promise to Abraham by means of election. Think about it. God chose Abraham for no apparent reason. 
from among all the people that were alive in the world at the time, he chose Abraham. And it doesn't stop there. God continues to select people from within Abraham's family to receive his promises. And he gives two examples of that. Abraham had more than one son, Ishmael and Isaac, for starters. But God selected Isaac to be the one to carry forward the promise. And then Isaac got married. He married this lady named Rebekah. And they had two sons, Esau and Jacob. And before they were even born, twins... God selected Jacob instead of Esau. Why? Same father, same mother, born at same time, twins. God is carrying his purpose forward through election, he says to us here. That his purpose of election might continue. Now sometimes people think election is God's way of sort of looking ahead in the future and seeing which people will choose him and then choosing them based on that. But that's not what's happening here, is it? Before Jacob and, and, and Esau were before, be born, before they'd done anything at all, God says this one, not this one. Now there's this hard statement here, isn't there? Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, quoted from the prophet Malachi. What does that mean? It's a hard, it's a hard one. There's tough stuff in this passage. But I think, I think what's being said here is, do you remember in Luke, Jesus makes a similar statement. He says, look, if you don't hate your father, your mother, your wife, your kids, even your own life, you're not worthy to follow me. Same, same idea here. I think the idea is it's an idea of contrast. He actually teaches people to love their parents, to love their spouses, to love their kids. But he's saying the contrast between loving him and loving others is so great. It's as though it were a contrast between love and hate. And I think that's the idea here that God is selecting and choosing Jacob. Now, why? We need to think about this. Why does God make these selections? Why Abraham? Why Isaac? Why Jacob? Well, we're told here in verse 11 that God's purpose of election might continue not by what? See, what it says right now is really important. Does God have your attention? This is really important. Not by works, but because of his call. Now think about what's being said here. If God is going to have a family, you know what he's saying? He's going to be that one that's going to have to work to make it happen. It's not by human work. It's by God's call. See, God's promise isn't fulfilled by God having sort of a job fair and collecting resumes, interviewing people, and then selecting the best candidates. There are no resumes there are no applicants for the kingdom of God. There are no interested candidates. God is selecting people who are otherwise disinterested in him and his kingdom. Only God can make a Christian. Only God can make a Christian. Listen, election is not something Paul invents. It's not something John Calvin invents. It's right here in Genesis, right at the beginning of the story. And what God wants us to see about himself is this. God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Who is this God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? He is sovereign and he is unstoppable in his saving 
purposes and promises. If it was up to human beings, there would be no family of God. But it's not. God's purpose of election continues and he accomplishes what he sets out to do so that he might have a people. So why doesn't all Israel believe? Well, the first answer is this. It's not because God's word failed. The second answer is even more challenging. It's not because God is unfair. Listen to verses 14 through 24. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, pause for a deep breath. This is some hard stuff, isn't it? There's some tough sledding here in Romans 9, especially in the middle of this chapter. There's some things to meditate over and ponder, some things to discuss. I want to encourage you to John Stott's commentary on this, which is very good. The ESV study Bible is good. Get together with someone else if you're struggling over these questions. Talk about them. Meet with one of the elders. So be, I'd be glad to get together with, with you if you'd like to talk more about this. But I want you, we, we want to listen to God Let's listen to his word. Now, why, why is it that Israel doesn't all believe? Why are people who are close to God not all coming to faith in God? It's not because God is unfair. So here's the question. Is God unfair to show mercy to one person and not to another? Let's just face the question, right? Is God unfair to show mercy to one person and not to another? Again, how do we find out? Not through philosophy, not through necessarily going somewhere and taking classes, we open our Bibles. And this time, Paul goes back not to Genesis, but to Exodus. And he looks at Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the leader of Egypt. And Pharaoh would absolutely, remember if you know the story, Pharaoh would absolutely not let Israel go. They were too valuable, this massive slave labor force that, that Pharaoh owned. And so after nine plagues with his country in ruins, Pharaoh still stubbornly will not let go of Israel until the 10th plague, the Passover, and the, the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. Now, why does this happen? Why does this happen? Well, you can look at Pharaoh as an individual. You can go back and read the account and you can see he was proud, he was greedy, he was stubborn, he was hateful. And you can also see there's a, another actor, there's another person involved in what's happening here. It's God. 
In the same event, Pharaoh is working and God is working. And God is committed to using this man as a witness to his glorious saving power. He says, for this purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God is passionate for the glory of his name. God is able to use the enslavement of his people to exalt his name in all the earth. And the principle that we're seeing here in this passage is this. God can show mercy to whomever he wants, but he's under requirement to show mercy to no one. I'll have mercy upon whom I have mercy. Compassion upon whom I have compassion. And God is asserting and, and affirming his right to decide who that is. Is that unfair? Kind of deal with this. Is that unfair for God to be like that? And the answer that we get in his word is no, it's not. Some get what they deserve, judgment. Hardening, as I understand it, hardening simply unleashes people to pursue more of what they already want in their rebellion against God. Others get what they don't deserve, and that's mercy. John Stott writes, The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. I think that's perfect. I think that's what's being taught here. I think that's what we need to to get our minds around. It's humbling, and at the same time, it exalts the saving grace and power of God. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not, but that anybody is saved at all. So then the next question is, well, okay, then is is God unfair to hold us accountable? If he's the one doing all the choosing, then I'm not responsible, right? If he can do whatever he wants, I'm not responsible before him. And here, honestly, we come to one of the most difficult questions in all of Scripture and in all of of life, really. And, And here's what I'd expect. I would expect in this moment sort of a, a, a digression where we might get a, a, a discussion of the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. The Bible teaches two things simultaneously. The Bible teaches that God is completely sovereign over all history and that human beings are completely responsible and accountable to God. You might think of a transmission like you see in this picture here. This is a picture of an automobile transmission. And in this transmission, there are gears And there are, at different points, two gears that are turning in opposite directions, but they're working together to drive the car forward. And that's how God's sovereignty and human responsibility can function together, even though they seem like they're moving in opposite directions and they're incompatible. They're not. I can't explain all the mysteries of that. So I would expect sort of a digression along these kinds of lines right here. And you know what happens? Something completely different. The Holy Spirit doesn't direct us in the truths that I've just been mentioning here, but the Holy Spirit reveals for us and reminds us of something a little different, and that is this. God has the right to do whatever he wants. Listen now. Why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? In other words, 
Let us not sit in judgment on God's performance as ruler of the universe. Right? To judge God, to give a report card to God for how he's doing and being in charge, it would be like a six-year-old challenging the wisdom of engineers running a nuclear power plant. Push those buttons. Open those valves. Turn off that pump. I know. Well, you guys don't know what you're doing. It would be absurd. Less absurd than us challenging God's wisdom in running the universe, though. For human beings to become critics of God's performance is like clay telling a potter what to do. Now, listen carefully. This does not mean that God does not welcome honest, anguished questions about who he is and what he's up to. Go read Psalms. (laughs) Read the book of Job. Those books are there for a reason, to encourage us to bring our struggles, our questions, and our anguish to God. We're talking about something different here. We're talking about people who sit as critics in judgment over God and challenge his wisdom and rule. See, at moments like this, when, when we gaze upon the sovereignty of God in salvation, when we gaze upon the sovereignty of God in election, when we gaze upon the power of God, and gathering a family, and we, we bump into questions, is this fair? Is he right to do this? There's a point at which we run out of understanding, and we have to make a decision. Am I going to settle down here as a critic or as a worshiper? Got to land somewhere. See, God is up to something. God is totally committed to gathering to himself a people who join him in the happy land of the Trinity, who enter into the joys of his glorious perfections. And God always accomplishes what he sets out to do. Even sometimes delaying judgment on people who are deserving of it, even hardening hearts for a time in order to display his glory in judgment on them and in salvation to others whom he chooses to save. What we're gazing upon here, this is challenging, but it's revealing as well. Nothing highlights the ultimacy of grace like the truth of election. Hear that. Nothing highlights the ultimacy of grace like these truths of election that we're gazing on here. Author D.A. Carson says it this way. He says, God did not have to save any. Is Is that our starting point? We saw that in Romans 1, 2, and 3. God did not have to save any. If he saved one, it would be a great act of grace. Here, he saves a vast number of guilty people out of his grace alone, having compassion on whom he will, as is his right. A little uncomfortable, isn't it? I find these things to be so challenging. 
Do you know what I find? I, I find that I can relate to God as a good shepherd, as my father, spirit as a comforter, Christ my savior. And, and, and I love that about God and all those things are true. I also find that this God, he's got some sharp edges. This God, sometimes he leaves me speechless. This God, he doesn't answer all my questions. And he seems to feel under no obligation to do so. And there's pretty good reason for that. He's infinite and I'm finite. He's immortal. I'm mortal. He's all wise. I'm pretty simple. And so what do we do in moments like this when we bump into these sharp edges of who God really is? Well, here's what I think is best to do. Let us fear God and give him glory. This God that we serve, aren't you glad he's not like you and me? This God that we serve, he's not a tame God. He's not a pet we put on a leash and take out for a walk. Is he unfair? No. Does he give undeserved mercy? Yes, he does. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Is he a God who exercises perfect justice? Yes, he is. Praise God for his justice on the cross, which results in unrighteous people being able to be brought into right standing with a righteous God. He's not a God we use. He's a God we obey. He's not a God we stuff into a box. And we can explain all the edges and the contours. No, he's a God we fall down before and worship and declare, you are God and we are not. To encounter this God is to be dazzled by his glory and left sometimes uncomfortable by these sharp edges. Take your shoes off. You're on holy ground here. He's not like us. Just reminded the Jesus, Jesus' maybe best friend, the Apostle John, Go read Revelation 1. When John encounters the resurrected Jesus in all his glory, you know what he does? He doesn't walk up and give a high five. When he sees the unveiled glory of Jesus Christ, you know what he does? He falls down as though dead. Do you know that, God? Behold your God. Why doesn't all Israel believe? It's not because God's word failed. It's not because God is unfair. Here's the last answer. But because they failed to seek righteousness through Christ. Listen to the last part of this chapter. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who was called beloved, I will call, excuse me, her who was called, uh, who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. 
For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. If so many Jewish people were rejecting the Messiah back then, the question came up, has Has God kept his promises? We can ask the same question today. Why are there so many people who know so much about God and reject Jesus as the Messiah? And so Paul keeps reading his Bible, Genesis, Exodus. Now he goes to the prophets. He goes to Hosea and Isaiah. Hosea was a prophet who preached to a people who were about to be wiped out. The northern kingdom of Israel was about to be destroyed by the nation of Assyria. They were under God's judgment for their hard-heartedness and unbelief. And so Hosea comes along and he proclaims not only God's judgment to this people, but also this principle. Listen to what he says. He says, those who are outsiders will become insiders. Those who are not God's people will end up as God's people. Those who are not loved will end up as beloved. And Paul looks at all this and he sees how this is working out in his day and it's still working out in our day. And that is people, Gentiles, with people with no ethnic connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people like that, people like many people here, people like me, end up in God's kingdom People who aren't pursuing Yahweh, the God of the Bible. People who are not looking for the one true God somehow end up in his family while so many others who are so close having the word, having the law, having the covenants, having preaching, having knowledge of the Messiah end up on the outside. Why? Why? We've been hearing about this from God's side. Now we're going to hear about it from the human side. You ever been looking at your phone, walking along, maybe you're texting, and you don't see what's ahead? Saw a video this week of a lady who was looking at her phone. She was walking along. She didn't see there was a fountain in front of her, and she ended up wet on videotape. Man, I hate it when that happens. She stumbled. God is telling us here there's a stumbling stone. I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. That's what keeps religious insiders from God. And that same stone becomes the source of salvation for people who are outsiders. What's the stone? Better, who's the stone? Look at the verse. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in, what's it say? Him. Him will not be put to shame. How do people become members of God's family? Listen carefully. If you've grown up going to church, listen carefully. If you've been in church for a long time, listen carefully. 
If you're close to people who are Christians, listen carefully. How do people become members of God's family? It's not through genetics. It does not matter who your parents are. It's not through getting good grades. Nobody ever gets enough A's to qualify to graduate into God's kingdom. Israel pursued a law that could lead to righteousness, but they never got there. How do people become members of God's family? It's not through trying to be a good person. It's not through going to church. It's not through hoping that at the end, your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, maybe by just a little, but enough. No. It's not through hanging around other Christians. There's only one way into God's family. It's through believing in Him. The stone, the rock, Jesus Christ our Lord. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Think about what's happening here. This is, this is stunning. Remember how hard it was to hear about Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and you know Isaac but not, not Ishmael. It's hard to hear that sort of exclusionary language, isn't it? But you see what's happening here? This is full inclusion. Calling all children of Ishmael, calling all children of Esau, calling all children of Pharaoh, calling all Egyptians, calling all Arabs, calling all people from China and India and Europe and Africa and Northern Virginia, if you will come to him and believe on Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The door is wide open. Nobody is excluded. It doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. It doesn't matter where you grew up. You can't Get in by osmosis by hanging around in church and you can't be excluded based on anything you've done. Oh, Ellen, wherever you are, thank you so much for your testimony this morning. What a wonderful, powerful story about the saving power of God. And there's this point where she says, I just didn't think God could accept me. How many of us have had that thought? But God's word tells us here this morning, that is a lie. Nobody's good enough for God to accept except Jesus. And if you will believe in him, you will come in with him. The door is wide open. Nobody excluded. Come in through faith and faith alone. Here we are with this massive discussion about sovereignty and election. And we close with this. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's God's promise. Let us be a people. who are moved with compassion for those who are not God's people. Unceasing anguish in my heart, Paul says, that my people would come in. 
let these truths about God and his kingdom stir passion and affection for people who are not God's people. At the same time, let us be a people who when faced with God in his awesome, incomprehensible, unfathomable sovereignty, his saving glory. Let us be a people who simply, wholeheartedly, unreservedly worship. We worship this God. This God who always accomplishes what he sets out to do. This God who is still reaching out to not my people, saying, come home through Jesus Christ. The worship team, come on back up. I think it'd be good for us to sing. As they're coming up, would you stand with me, please? I just want to read two verses from Isaiah that I've been praying over this message, talking about it with people this week. Just found these verses, just helping me sort of pull together what's happening here. Listen to God speaking to people like us. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. Can we affirm that this morning? Can that lead us to worship this morning? Can we confess and delight in this? I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. What kind of a God is he? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. What a God we serve. Only God can make a Christian. If it weren't for God, there'd be no believers. Every believer is a testimony to amazing grace. This is a God who's a God like no other. This is a God who always accomplishes everything he sets out to do. As we close our service this morning, let us worship this great God. And declare, great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, there's no shadow of turning with you. You change not. Your compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Let's lift our voices and sing.